You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. Come with me in your Bible this morning to uh, Genesis chapter 32. And I want to read to you 10 verses. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. says, During the night, Jacob got up and took his two, two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match against Jacob, that is, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man said. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the, man, uh, the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face. Yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. I was reading a story just a few weeks ago of a brother and a sister. The sister was five years of age. The brother was three years of age. And they were re- watching, rather, on television a documentary on crocodiles and lizards. And as the documentary came to a close and the credits are rolling, the five-year-old sister turned to her three-year-old brother and said, let's play crocodiles and lizards. The three-year-old brother was actually physically stronger than his five-year-old sister. Yet the five-year-old sister said, I'll be the crocodile. You can be the lizard. The three-year-old complied. Of course, he's three years of age. What do you do when your big sister says, this is what you'll do? You do as you're told. And Ethan knows that when Sienna tells him to do something. So they immediately get up in like a sumo wrestling pose and they lock horns together and they clench their arms around each other and fall to the floor. But because the three-year-old is physically stronger than the five-year-old, he very quickly subdued her. He's sitting on top of her. She's getting very upset, quite irate, and suddenly bursts out with, you can't do that. You're a lizard. He let go and sat back and said, well, what what do lizards do? She said, they lick. (laughs) And run her her tongue up the side of his cheek and said, they lick like that. That's all lizards do. So they started the game again and the sister now is sitting on top of the brother. Of course, his tongue's not long enough to lick. And he very quickly became frustrated and said, I don't want to play this game anymore. You know, we've, we've been sitting under some pretty inspiring, informative and motivational teaching over the last few months in our Sunday 5pm service. As Margot said earlier, Pastor John has really 
laid some great biblical foundations for the person of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, the activity of the Holy Spirit. And now Pastor Arden is very, very clearly and very well activating us into the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I believe are predominantly tools for us to use in our broken world. I know they can be activated in the church, and I know that the prophetic word in particular is, uh, is about building us up and encouraging us, and so they're not limited to the outside world, but I believe they're predominantly designed to be used in the outside world. But over the last few weeks, we've, we've witnessed at least two visible miracles. God is doing something in the house, in the area of the supernatural. I believe there is a rekindling, a refiring of a desire for us to, to harness, be harnessed by the Holy Spirit, but to partner with God in reaching our broken world Monday to Saturday, not just on Sunday, hoping they will come to church. But we'll be out there sharing our faith, sharing our life, sharing our journey, our experience with God and utilising the gifts of the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts to receive the message of the gospel. And then we then bring them to church, ideally already saved because we've led them to the Lord. But if we don't have the confidence for that, bring them into the atmosphere of the house and give them an opportunity to get saved. But Arden is taking us on a journey of equipping us to actually be used as a vessel for the power of God to flow through to touch our broken world. But here's what happens very quickly. The enemy starts to whisper in your ear, you can't do that. You're just a lizard. Even though we are actually empowered, even though we are actually equipped, even though we do have more potential than our big sister might tell us we have, He will subdue us and say, you can't do that, you're not good enough. You can't do that, you're a failure. You can't do that, you're a sinner. You can't do that, you're unholy. Just look at your behaviour. It is so inconsistent. You, You can't do that because you're not worthy for the Holy Spirit to fill you and flow through you. He will very, very quickly get into our mind and begin to squash our actual potential And lead us to believe that we really are limited and can't do what we're hearing we can do on Sunday night in our services. The devil will very, very quickly attack your true identity. Who you really are and who you really are called to be. And in attacking our identity, he slowly chips away at our confidence. And when your confidence is gone you lose all motivation to get up and have a go. It doesn't mean your potential's gone. It just means he has sabotaged the outworking of that potential by speaking into your mind things that are actually not true. You can't do that. You're not good enough. Look at your track record. You've tried so many times at things in life and you have failed more times than you have actually tried Serving God, you're just going to end up with egg on your face once again. And we start to listen to those thoughts. We start to listen to who the devil tells us our identity is. And it very, very quickly sabotages the outworking of our destiny in God. 
very quickly begins to undermine us. Until we settle the issue of our true identity as Christ followers, as born-again Christians, the enabling grace of God will not effectively flow through our life. Because when we settle the issue of who we are in Christ, faith is activated. That is who I am. That is who I am called to be. Regardless of my past, regardless of my failings, regardless of my weaknesses and my shortcomings, if God says it, I believe it and that settles it. Until we, we settle that issue in our heart, the grace of God will never effectively be released in it. The grace of God, apart from being his undeserved favour, it's actually his enabling. When the grace of God comes upon you, you're enabled to do what you could not do without the grace of God. Somebody said once, God will never give you more than you can handle. Rubbish. He will always give you more than you can handle. You know, he does that because he wants you to trust in his grace to do what you can't handle. You know, God wants us to be in partnership with Him. He wants us to be walking with Him. He wants us to believe what He says about us. He wants us to come regularly to the throne of grace that we might receive grace to help us when we have something to do that we aren't capable of doing. He will regularly give you things you can't do. Because he wants you to come to the throne of grace for the equipping, for the enabling, for the, the grace of God to come upon you to lift you to that place where you can do what you think you can't do. You know, sticks and stones will break our bones. But let me tell you this. Names are determining your future. You know, that old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, it is not true. You know, the Bible tells us that death and life is in the power of the tongue. You know, we can very quickly build up, we can very quickly tear down, depending on what is said and the tone in which it's said. There is power in our words. There's power in what is spoken over your life. There is power in what is said and how you receive what is said. We respond to life according to the way we see ourselves. There's an interesting story, two chapters prior to the one I just read in Genesis 32. It's in Genesis chapter 30. And the story is where Jacob is with his, his uncle Laban and who is his father-in-law, Jacob is there and he's married Rachel and Leah. And I don't have time to go into the whole story. He wanted Rachel, so he agreed to work for his father-in-law for seven years, but his father-in-law tricked him and gave him Leah and then said, if you really want Rachel, work another seven years. And so his father-in-law was really, really scrupulous. And the story, unscrupulous, Thank you, I heard that. Unscrupulous. <laughs> the story is that he's got Rachel and Leah. He's worked faithfully for Laban. And then he says, I need you to let me go. It's time to go back to dad. It's time to go back to my homeland. It's time to take my, my, my wife and my kids and you know, pay me up. And, and they, they struck an agreement and said, what will your wages be? And Jacob just said, look, Jacob's a trickster, okay? He said, you give me every spotted and speckled lamb or goat out of your herd, that will be my wages. Laban agrees. But that day goes out, gets his other sons and says, go and get every spotted and speckled sheep and herd them three days away from here. 
So before Jacob gets a chance to go and pick them out, he already cleans them out. And so Jacob goes and there's none left. But Jacob, being very, very shrewd, decides he will take branches off a what's called a poplar, poplar tree and he strips, strips of bark off. Not all the bark, but just strips of bark. So it became uh, striped like a zebra, if you like. And he put those in the trough, the watering trough. And as the, the goats and the sheep came to water at the trough, they would see these things. But it was also where they would mate, where they would breed. And putting those things there, every time the sheep came in and they would mate there, they began to produce spotted and speckled and striped offspring. It used to always fascinate me, that story, thinking, is that even possible? Well, I suppose it is because I believe the Bible. But it's like, here's the lesson out of it. We become what we see. They saw the stripes, the spotted, so they produced that. They became in their kind what they saw. And it's the same with us. How we see ourselves is how we behave, how we become, what our destiny unfolds into, how we view ourselves, and the names that we imbibe in life determine how we see ourselves. The kinds of names that are spoken over us that we receive and embrace determine and we respond to life according to how we see ourselves. Words spoken over us can become personal names that we carry in our heart. You know, on my birth certificate, my name's Martin. But I've never been called that. Never. I've always been called Marty. Marty. I don't, I don't really know why, but my birth certificate says Martin. My mother didn't even call me Martin when she was angry with me. I've just never been called Martin. I've always been called Marty. It's like, but my name is Martin. That's the truth. My name, my name is Martin. So, but I've, I've always been called Marty. So, oh, well, hi, you know, are you new? My name's Marty. What's your name? Well, my name's useless. Really? That's your name? Who called you? Oh, well, it's not really my name on my birth certificate. It's what I've been called all my life. You see, I've been called Marty all my life. I've not been called what my real name actually is. And so if I'm walking down the street and I hear somebody, Martin, I probably wouldn't turn. Because it's foreign to me. It's not, it's not my name, even though legally it is. But if somebody called Marty, yeah, it would be. There are some people in life, their name is George, but they've been called useless all their life, that if somebody calls, hey, useless, they turn and look. Because they actually believe that that's who they are. They actually believe that they are useless. Hi, my name's Marty. What's yours? Hi, I'm incompetent. Who called you that? I like, well, it wasn't my mum and dad. My name's really Fred. Sorry, Fred, where are you? You're here somewhere. <laughs> He's hiding somewhere. I've just been called incompetent all my life. So uh, that's my name. That's the name I've always gone by. C- can you see how this works? You know, it's like, what's, what's your name? Is inconsistent, hopeless, stupid, foolish, unattractive, insignificant, worthless. These names that we've been called all of our life then form a picture of ourselves in our mind and that picture becomes the lens through which we see our life. And from that perspective, we then do or don't do what is set before us. 
If I've been called useless all my life and Pastor Arden's trying to activate me, the Holy Spirit wants to speak, oh no, he wouldn't want to use me, I'm useless. I'm just useless. No, look, I, look, I, I, look, I can see Arden, you've got the anointing, but you're not useless, I'm useless, you're Arden, you've got God in your life and I can see that why he'd use you. But look, I've been called useless and incompetent all my life and, and it's like, you know, and the devil's in your ear so whispering this thing, yeah, that, that's who you are, that's exactly who you are. Let me tell you something, until we begin to remove those names out of our life and we start to imbibe the name that Jesus gives us and we start to embrace the name that the Bible puts on us, we will be stunned in our potential, in our destiny. I don't want to stand before Jesus saying, well, I really couldn't do what you called me to do because I'm useless. And Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, is going to look down on me and say, so you believe that over me, the creator of heaven and earth who designed everything? You believe that before you believe me? That, I'd find that very embarrassing. I, I don't know about you, but I'd find that very embarrassing to say, well, I actually believe the devil, Jesus. Even though I did pray a sinner's prayer and I've been going to church, for 35 years, I, 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 really, I really didn't believe what you said I could do would be true. For many of us, that lens that we see our life through is robbing us of our God-given destiny. We will never function in the power of heaven with those names still printed on the forehead of our life. Or even worse, embroidered into the fabric of our heart, our soul. We will never embrace. They, you know, they become a stronghold. Listen to me. You've been called useless all your life. It becomes a stronghold. You know, you know, ben, just throw that up for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Watch this. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for what? Pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What happens is you're told you're useless, you're useless, you're useless. That, that, those words go into your mind. You, you meditate on it, you process it, and you begin to believe, yes, I am useless. Yes, I really am useless. You, know, you, you might actually have the potential to become a doctor, but you so believe you're useless that, that you just take something uh, lesser than your potential actually calls you to do because you believe it and it starts with a word or a thought and usually the thought is planted by a word that's spoken over your life here's what happens here's how a stronghold is formed in your life and a stronghold is when the devil has a stronghold on your life that's all a stronghold is and when he gets you to believe that you are who Christ's that you are not who Christ says you are, that's a stronghold. He's got a stronghold on your mind and when he's got a stronghold on your mind, he has a stronghold on your destiny. Because as a man thinks in his heart, that's what he is. That's biblical. Here's what happens. You, you, people, you're useless. You're useless. So you start thinking, yeah, I'm useless. I'm useless. I'm useless. And you entertain the thought. What happens then is that thought becomes a high thing in your life. A high thing is when you focus on it, when you, you give it more time than you should. You meditate on it. You dwell on it. You process it. You dream about it. You go to bed at night with it on your mind. You wake up in the morning with it on your mind. I'm useless. I'm useless. It's become a high thing. And then that high thing develops or is fueled and fed by an argument. What's an argument? It's a process of thinking to prove that the thought is true or untrue. So, well, you know, I, I really must be useless. And then somebody else comes along, totally unrelated. You make some stupid mistake and they say, oh, man, you're useless. It's an argument proving that you were told you were useless must be true. Does that make sense? So the arguments come and eventually 
you think the arguments prove the case. I am useless and bang, he's got a stronghold in your life. So how do you pull down strongholds? Well, you you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What, What does that mean? It means I'm useless. Hang on a minute, stop. I've been told that all my life, I'm useless. I'm going to take that belief, that thought, that thinking process and I'm going to bring it into submission to the Word of God. Bring it to in submission to the obedience of Christ. You see, Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who, who became flesh and dwelt among us? Jesus. So he's the Word of God. So I bring it into submission to the Word of God. I'm useless. Hang on, what does the Word of God say? And then you begin to replace that thought with God's thoughts and you begin to meditate on that and eventually God's thoughts become a high thing. And you start dwelling on God's thoughts. You start thinking about what the Bible says about you and you start meditating on that and eventually the argument comes. You'll come Sunday night and Arden might just look at you and say, here's what the Lord's saying to you. It's no longer, uh, you're no longer useless. You, you are a child of God. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's a word from God for you. It's another argument proving the point that God is trying to establish in your life that the thought that you are capable, that you are equipped, that you are called, that you are enabled, that you have the grace of God, that you are a son daughter of God it's a it's an argument proving you're meditating on the right thing now and eventually that becomes the stronghold and when you've got a stronghold built on the word of God God will never see you destabilized that's what a stronghold does you know numerous people in the Bible were insignificant until their names were changed You've heard me say this numerous times in this platform. Names were very significant in the Bible. They had a prophetic power. They were prophetic declarations over the potential and the characteristics and the calling of the individual that was receiving the name, that took on the name, that imbibed the name. Abram. Abram means noble father. That must have been embarrassing for him. Bible in the Bible days, names meant something. If somebody asked you your name, they didn't just go, oh, George, how you doing, George? They knew what George meant. They understood that it was a prophetic declaration. And so Abram, hey, what's your name? I'm, I'm Abdul, whoever. Uh, I'm Abram. Abram, where's your kids? I don't have any. You know why it must have been embarrassing for him? Because Abram meant noble, exalted father. But he's aging rapidly and he's got no kids. So it's like people go, oh, somebody really missed the prophetic when they named you, didn't they? And so you don't have any offspring. And so you know the story of Abram. He's, he's struggling. God promises offspring. And then eventually God says to him, no longer will your name be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, which means a, multitude, a father of multitude. You see, that he became significant when his name changed. And as Abraham, he became the father of Isaac and then ultimately Jacob and then ultimately the 12 tribes and then ultimately the whole nation of Israel. And now the entire world who received Christ, we have the faith of Abraham. So he became the father of many nations. But it didn't happen until his name was changed. And it's the same with us. What's your name? Useless. We are never going to become anything when your name is useless. So God says, I'm changing your name. Son of God, daughter of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm changing your name. Sarai, his wife, 
well, watch this. Sarai, his wife. Sarai means princess. I wonder if she had the princess syndrome. Sarai means princess. But, but she became Sarah. God says, you no longer are you going to be Sarai. No longer are you going to be princess. Darling, your name's going to be Sarah. It was a prophetic declaration into her future. And Sarah actually means a mother of many. Names are a fascinating study in the Bible. That's why I loved it so much in Matthew chapter 1, where Judah became the father of Perez. Judah means praise. Perez means breakthrough. Praise and you'll get your breakthrough because praise gives birth to breakthrough. Names are amazing. Simon didn't step into his destiny until his name was changed to Peter. Saul did not become the great apostle until his name was changed to Paul. You see, names have power and it is so critical that we live by our God-given names, not by the names that tie us to restriction and bondage. We find Jacob at a river called Jabbok, which means empty and alone. I've been to Jabbok a few times and I'm sure many of you have. You're at the end of your rope, You're at the end of yourself. You're empty and you're alone. I I know what Jabbok is like. And here's Jacob finds himself empty and alone. He's, He's fearful of a brother's revenge. Remember years before he'd stolen, deceitfully stolen his brother's birthright. So here he is empty and alone, fearful of a brother's revenge. His wives are arguing and bickering with each other. And his father-in-law is angry at him. Most of which is self-inflicted. Because he deceived them all. He tricked them all. But you see, this is why he tricked them all. Jacob means deceiver. He was only operating out of the name that he'd been given. He was just fulfilling the prophetic declaration over his life that, that it meant trickster, it meant deceiver, it meant one who would, who would go behind the scenes and, and manipulate and sort things out to his own advantage. That's what his name meant. And as a result, he developed a culture of deception in his family. Because it's what he believed he was. It's what he believed he was called to be. And, and you know, his, his wife Rachel, when, when Laban comes breathing down his neck, annoyed that he was so tricked out of all of his sheep, even though Laban himself had done the dirty on Jacob, you know, don't try and fool a fooler and don't steal from a thief. Whatever you do. But that's what happened. Jacob outdid someone who was just a bigger con man as what he was. And so what happens is Laban comes and, and articles, artifacts, things have been stolen out of his house. And he says to Jacob, you've stolen from my house. He said, I haven't, I've taken only what was rightfully mine. No, I've got artifacts missing out of my house. Jacob says, search the camp. If you find them, whoever took them will be killed instantly, immediately put to death on the spot. So Laban searches the tent. But you know who stole them? Rachel, his wife. She was as big a deceiver and trickster as what her husband was because it was, it was who he was and he's building a culture of it in his life. And the story goes that Laban goes through the tent of Jacob and finds nothing, goes through Leah's tent, finds nothing, comes to Rachel's tent. She's sitting on the camel's saddlebags. And again with deception. Says, oh, please excuse me, my master, if I don't rise. It's that time of the month. 
You read it. So he passed by, but she had the artifacts in her bag. You see, it's who, it's who he was. We will always act out of who we believe we are. So they wrestle all night till the angel cripples him. This is fascinating. You know, Bill Johnson, I think it is, says, says, you know you're having a bad day when the angel who is sent to bless you doesn't like you. <laughs> it's pretty clear this angel does not like Jacob. They wrestle all night. They struggle all night. And the angel doesn't use any of his supernatural powers. You know, maybe the angel, Pastor John had answered this better than me. I'm not a theologian. But maybe the angel was actually Jesus in pre-incarnate. I, I, I don't know. But, but it was a supernatural thing. And the angel is not prevailing. Jacob is winning. At any time, the angel probably could have just subdued him with supernatural power. But they wrestled all night. And then the angel says to him, let me go. The dawn is breaking. My shift is over. It's time to knock off. I'm going home. Jacob says, I won't let you go till you bless me. This is fascinating. If you wrestle with an angel and you said, I will not let you go till you bless me, and the angel said, okay, what do you want? Would you ask for a new name? <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't. I wouldn't even think that. I could think of a million things that I'd want God to do in my life, but a new name? I, I, he says, I... You know, I will not let you go till you bless me. So the angel says, okay, what's your name? He says, it's Jacob. No longer will you be called deceiver, but you will be called triumphant with God. And Jacob lets him go. He let him go for a name change. Why? Because Joseph, uh, Jacob knew the power of the name. Jacob knew that that was a turning point, a pivotal point, a swinging point. That was an intersection in his life that would mark a whole new future, a whole new era of behaviour that would produce fruit that would far outweigh anything he had ever connived to get in the past. My name is no longer deceiver. Something supernatural came upon him in that moment and he was, he was changed. He was transformed and prophetically spoken into his life was his new destiny that he was triumphant with God and the blessing of God would be all over him. No longer will you be called Jacob, you will be called Israel because you have striven with God. You know, grace as well as disgrace is released through the imbibing of a name. Let me say that again. Grace as well as disgrace is released through the imbibing of a name. Grace, as I said earlier, is God's enabling power to become who he has called you to become. Disgrace releases a similar power, but from the opposite kingdom. Till we settle the issue of our true identity as born-again Christ followers and we believe our identity, the enabling grace of God will not effectively flow through our life. Let me say this to you. The whole world operates by faith. The whole world. It just depends on where their faith is placed. Fear is a manifestation of faith in the wrong kingdom. 
if you believe that things are going to go wrong in your life, if you believe that you will never amount to anything, if you believe the opposite of what God's Word says about you, you have just empowered the very one that Jesus disempowered on the cross at Calvary. You have just re-empowered him to again take control of your future. And let me tell you something, in his kingdom, your future is not bright. When we believe that we are unholy, wretched, unlovable, miserable sinners who can't and won't achieve anything for God, we are placing our faith in the devil and allowing him to determine our future. How do you pull down a stronghold? You've got to stop and go, what do I actually believe about myself? You then bring that belief into submission to the Word of God. And you say, I don't feel like what the Bible says I am or who the Bible says I am, but He's the Creator of heaven and earth. And I'm not going to argue with Him. And I begin to meditate on what the Bible says about me and I begin to build a stronghold in the Kingdom of God. I want God to have a stronghold over my life. I want Him to have a stronghold over my mind. I want Him to be the one that, that is the glory and the lifter of my head. I want Him to be the wind in my sails. When the storm blows, I want Him to be in the power of my boat. I don't want to fear what man can do to me. I only want to embrace what God has promised about me. I am loved by God. Regardless of how unloved I might be by people around me, I'm accepted, I'm empowered, I'm embraced, I'm adopted. And listen to me, adoption is an amazing thing. When, when you, you've heard me say this, but some of you haven't, so I'm going to say it again. It suffers me not, Paul said, to say the same thing to you over and over and over again. But when you're born into a natural family and you have biological parents that are fathering and mothering you, you know, they're stuck with you. It's true, isn't it? They're stuck with you. But when you're adopted, you were chosen. They chose you. And that's why adoption is such an amazing thing. I was chosen by God. He saw in my brokenness so much potential. He saw through the mess. He saw through the insecurities. He saw through the, 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 the smashed up self-esteem. The, he saw through the names that I were, was wearing on my forehead and in the fabric of my heart. He saw through it all and said, that's not who I created you to be. I know who I created you to be. Follow me and I will turn you into a trophy of my grace. A trophy of my grace. The Lord woke me up in the middle of the night again. It was just the other day. And he woke me up just as Joyce Meyer started and she was talking about being a trophy of God's grace. And she said, you know, when someone's a professional athlete, a little bit like me, you know, they have trophies. And they display their trophies. And when you visit their house, the trophy says how good they are. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? You are a trophy in God's cabinet showing how good he is. Oh, I like that. You are a trophy. Some of you are looking and saying, oh man, I tell you I'm rusted up. 
I'm an old trophy. I'm just not, you know. It's okay. If you just re-surrender, he gets out heaven's brasso and he just goes to work and he can take some of the worst imperfections out and bring us back. But if we don't believe, if we don't believe, don't let the devil... Don't let the devil tell you you're a lizard when you're a crocodile. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's stand together.